they'd just be down here just a little bit and then get really mad at people and kind of punch them around a little yep. bit. gentlemen welcome to the film find the greatest movie podcast ever assuming you've never listened to a movie podcast before i am your host adam porters and i'm joined by matt smith hey everybody i'm down here in the third sub basement of a secret government research facility and they're doing god knows only what to you and oh I, i'll tell you what they're doing <laughs> it. it they're doing it buddy boy you better believe it and uh, this is a special Patreon-timed episode, uh, so if you're listening to this on Patreon, thank you for helping support this year program, uh, but we will be releasing it a little bit later, and so this is to let those people that know, like, hey, if you're not on Patreon, man, it, now would be a great time to do it, because you get early stuff, you get extra things, all this kind of fun stuff ahead of everybody else, man, so head on down to patreon.com slash thefilmfind and uh, join, them, uh, join up, man, we'd really appreciate that. And uh, he's been on the show several times and uh, definitely wanted to have him on to talk about this because he has quite a lot of opinions. And opinions are what we're full of here, amongst other things on uh, Hero Movie Podcast. Justin Mullins, welcome back to the show, buddy. Happy to be here. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, man. This is, uh, this is quite a show here, man. Now, it is not. And one of the reasons that we're doing this as a timed Patreon exclusive is that this is not quite out to all of the country just yet, is it? I think we got at the end. It comes of, out this, this weekend. Yeah, this week is, is when it comes out wide, wide and everything. But uh, you've, you've seen it for about, what, two weeks now, man? Yes. Somewhere around that neighborhood, man. Oh, yeah, man. I went to a previous screening. About two and a half weeks ago, I guess. So, yeah, quite some time. So it's taken a little bit to get here. Finally got to Charlotte and everything. Uh, saw this thing the day before I saw Star Wars. So, uh, yeah, real good timing on that. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Fucking uh, Fox Searchlight. What? You really well, kinda... I mean, you did it. No, no. What do you mean, me? <laughs> I'm talking about Fox Searchlight being a douchebag and just going, let's wait to release it till right around Star Wars. That sounds like a real smart move. Well, I think holding it so wide was uh, their strategy for getting after Star Wars. Boner move. Right, because it, it will get a boost wide release, not being like the week before where it would have just immediately gone down and nobody would have remembered it again. Yeah, possibly. I think it maybe should have probably tried to go before instead of after. But, hey, you know, that's why Fox got sold off to Disney. <laughs> <laughs> you done Fair fucked enough. up, son. You done fucked up. So that's how that's how she goes. Uh, so um, now myself, I can't I can't speak for the, you guys, but uh, I certainly tried to. I saw the preview trailer for this one and then stayed away from everything because boy, I did not want to know nothing. Justin, I know you kind of were like you're one of those obsessive compulsive over this kind of thing, right? Uh, over just, over Guillermo del Toro well, movies, well, just, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but but this was this was also a case where I I really badly wanted to see the trailer for this movie, and then when I finally saw it, I went, "I'm good, I'm done," and I didn't watch oh. another thing relating to it until I saw the film itself. I didn't read anything, I didn't want to know anything else about the movie because I was like, you know, not nine films in, I trust Del Toro as a director, yeah. not to disappoint me. So yeah. 
I can understand that. No, but that's good. That's hey, that's that's different from a lot of other people. And I'm finding more and more that uh, that tends to do me well with movies. It's 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 rarely served me all that wrong. So you know. I, just something, and I know it's gone out to other people. There are other people that have kind of been thinking about it, and once they put it into practice, they're like, you know, it kind of does make a difference. So I, you know, give it a shot, everybody. If there's something that's coming out that you're like, mm, I don't know if I want to get spoiled, or I feel like there's a good you know, chance for me really liking this sort of thing, but I don't want any sort of surprises, stay away from the trailers. I mean, as much as like, you know, Matt and I end up going to the movies, it's not as hard as you might think staying away from trailers. You just have to make a conscious decision to do it, you know? Right, I I don't do that. Well, you're an idiot, so we all know that. But that's just because without <laughs> saying, I thought. I, I just like to know, like, uh, well, you know, I don't give a shit about spoilers, so that's that's a huge thing for me. Is I like I really don't care. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go out of my way to read about stuff beforehand, but like a trailer. Part of what interests me is like how are they selling it versus what is the movie we actually get. I like so, studying that afterwards for sure. Yeah, sure. Because I, you know, I, I don't want to go like, oh, I'm never going to go watch this trailer ever, ever, because it's just whatever, because I do like the art of trailer making. I'll say that. Uh-huh. Well, you know, it's just like uh, Sly and the Family Stone said, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> we are everyday people uh, here, folks. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, yeah, so let's go ahead and uh, take a listen to the trailer for shape, The Shape of Water. I got to put it on the article there. If I told you about her, the princess without voice, what would I say? very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human, stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. doesn't know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. The natives in the Amazon worshiped him like a god. Get him out. What are you talking about? No. You need to take it apart, learn how it works. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. We can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Alasa. What is she saying? Don't do this. Oh, God, it's not even human. If I told you about her, what would I say? I wonder. 
was the trailer for The Shape of Water. Here is the IMDb plotline. Couldn't get much simpler than this. In a 1960s research facility, a mute janitor forms a relationship with an aquatic creature. Boy, just dumbing it down as much as you can there, IMDb. Good for you. Uh, this is directed by Guillermo del Toro, written by Guillermo del Toro and Vanessa Taylor, starring... Sally Hawkins, Michael Shannon, Richard Jenkins, Octavia Spencer, Michael Schulberg, Doug Jones, and more. Um, so, how, how do you not know how to say his name still? It's Michael Stuhlbarg. What did I say? Okay, fine. I don't. I don't know. know. Michael <laughs> Schulberg or something. I, I don't. Well, I feel like he's been in five movies this year. You, I'm sure you he should has, say that. Already. And you think that I would know <laughs> things, but you you also should know at this point. Uh, you know, it is what it is, and I'm gonna fuck it up. I don't care. So all right. Listen, listen, here's the thing. When I read this IMDb, if you have the decency to be born in Long Beach, California, you got the decency to have a goddamn American name. (laughs) Uh, Uh, Well, I mean, it is. It is. Fair (laughs) enough. Shut up. Uh, So, um, I did, uh, myself, like I said, I I knew very little about this going in other than that it was Del Toro. And, uh, but let's kind of go, like I said, let's, I, I think we pretty much have kind of, really done this a little bit but let's let's talk about just our overall thoughts on del toro as a director before we jump into this because i think and i could be wrong here but i think somewhat appreciation of this movie can come from being a del toro fan uh but can also you don't i i also from what i saw when i went to a screening i don't think you necessarily have to be a del toro fan to really get in on this one so uh matt what's your kind of history and take on del toro um, man, that, I mean, that is really broad. Uh, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. I, I've, uh, been aware of him, uh, at least since mimic, I guess, which is a terrible, uh, experience in his, in his recollections of, of filmmaking, uh, his first branch into, uh, into the U S but, uh, so I, so I first saw mimic, I guess on late night TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and then years later, uh, found myself in the movie theater watching Blade Two. Um, we didn't really have an art house cinema, or at least when I was a, a teenager, I wasn't going to one, so I didn't get to see The Devil's Backbone and Kronos until sometime later. Um, but I really just like all all of his movies. Uh, Crimson Peak, I think, is a gorgeous film. Um, Pacific Rim's a hell of a lot of fun. The Hellboy Hellboy Two is one of my favorite comic book movies. I mean, it just nails everything about that comic book that I love, as well as uh, everything about him that I love, and in the weird ways that it plays around with seriousness and action sequences and comedy and horror. Um, so I'm a big fan of his. I'll, I'll leave it at that, I guess. Okay, Justin. So I, I'm feeling like a, a kindred spirit here to Matt, actually, um, because I have pretty much the exact same story when it comes to Del Toro, who who I don't have any qualms about saying is my favorite living director. Mm. Um, so but yeah, it, it's actually the exact same story, pretty much. I mean, the first Del Toro film I ever saw was Mimic. I saw it late night on the sci fi channel when I was in high school. Um, I I feel like that's always very telling because just like Matt said, Del Toro basically regards Mimic as like, I think the only film that he's unhappy with that he's made because it's not 
the movie, even the director's cut that's available now on Blu-ray is not his vision of what he wanted that movie to be. So I think it's telling that I guess what he would consider to be his worst movie was a film that I saw and I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to hitch my cart to this guy and follow him because this is just fantastic. Um, and then for me, the second film I saw after Mimic, the first one I saw in a theater as well, wasn't Blade 2, but it was the first Hellboy. Um, and so, and, and then Hellboy was then followed by Pan's Labyrinth, which I also saw in theaters and with Pan's Labyrinth, um, that, that was the point where really I was like, all right, you know, uh, Del Toro, this is an amazing director. He has a very unique vision. It's a vision that I relate to a lot. He has, he's making, he's making movies that I guess in some alternate universe, if I, was to have somehow pursued a, fi- a, a career in filmmaking, I feel like I would want to make the kinds of movies that he makes. And then that led me, after Pan's Labyrinth, that was a movie that led me to start kind of going backwards and being like, all right, I never saw Blade Two, I've never seen Kronos, I've never seen Devil's Backbone. And then since then, it's just been a forward trajectory where every film he's come out with, I've waited for with, with bated breath. You know, people who have, heard me on this show before know that I'm a huge kaiju fan. So especially when Pacific Rim became a thing, that was a moment for me where I was like, I don't remember making a deal with the devil, but I think (laughs) I must have because somehow I've got my favorite director making a movie in my favorite genre. So, you know, and, and then Shape of Water is also just a film that I was really, really excited about because of out of out of all the universal monster movies, the creature from the Black Lagoon is my favorite. And so to see Del Toro do a riff on that was just really fantastic. So, yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of his, Um, you know, again, uh, you know, just just, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of bias there, um, (laughs) you know, and a lot of a lot of loyalty. So but yeah. Yeah, for me, I would say a lot of it kind of comes down to, like, I am a fan. I do like his stuff. I don't think I'm as head over heels as a lot of other people tend to be. He's a person whose work that I do like, but I think I almost respect his stuff more than I love it, I guess, in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, and that's not to say that I don't enjoy the films, because I most certainly do. Um, but it's, but definitely, uh, Pan's Labyrinth was the one for me. I'd seen others of his obviously, but to me, that was the first one where it really kind of cemented him down for me as something, uh, definitely more than just a genre director, somebody who had like, you know, a real, a real craft and skill and stuff. And when, you know, left to his own devices to do whatever he wanted, could put together something really, really special. And especially around that time when, you know, we, we got a lot of crap to have something that was just like, oh, yeah, by the way, here's something you've never seen before. It's very different. And we don't care that this is, you know, uh, what, what, whatever, whatever. We're going to put, put a uh, Spanish language film out, you know, wide release and, you know, critics by and by critics, I mean, the public be damned. We're going to do whatever we do. And a lot of people really ended up loving that film. And uh, while he's done other things, Crimson Peak, uh, of course, uh, being one that's kind of, I, I would say this is like his third in that kind of, in, in that trilogy, if you will. Not to say that the other things have, have been bad by any stretch of the imagination, but I think more of kind of almost a thematic sort of 
feel to what he's doing. This is kind of the third one in there, and uh, it's it's quite interesting. Yeah, I as as a big and as unabashed of a fan as I am um, of Del Toro's work, I totally understand why he doesn't perhaps have uh, mainstream appeal and is in a lot of ways still very much kind of a cult filmmaker if if that term is applicable to somebody who makes the kinds of films that he does and has achieved the kind of critical standing that he has um you know maybe it's just a, a different kind of cult than we're used to thinking about with that term but but you know he is a director who has a very very idiosyncratic tastes and interests and a very specific aesthetic style and he is not a director who i think is prone to any kind of real compromise when it comes to what his artistic vision is, um, you know, which which can make him somewhat alienating to a, a general audience because he does not have broad interests and he's not interested really, I think, in making movies for a broad public. Even a movie like Pacific Rim does a lot of things that you would not expect a big commercial blockbuster of that type to do um, normally, you know, and, and, you know, so I, I think that's what has kept a certain distance between him. But I think, like you said, Adam, that's what's engendered him a lot of respect from the critical establishment, even if they don't always uh, enjoy the movies he makes, they respect, um, and I think the, the opportune word here is they respect the sincerity behind them as um, fr from from a director, from an artist um, like him, you know, that he really believes in the movies that he's making and the vision that he has for them. And, you know, it, it, it does really feel like Del Toro is, is somebody who is making movies for himself and kind of like you said, you know, everybody else be damned, but if you happen to like them, then that's just great, so... Yeah, I, I, go ahead. I don't, I don't know that I agree that uh, he's not a mainstream director. I mean, certainly he he has a specific vision for the things that he's doing. But I mean, you're you're talking when you talk about something like Pacific Rim, right? Like Pacific Rim had a budget of uh, like roughly 190 million dollars, and it made 400 million worldwide. Granted, much of that not in the United States. But I think that's true of all of his films uh, and is certainly even true of most mainstream films. Like the majority of their money does not come from the United States. Um, so I, I just want to push back. Like people, I think, really do know this guy and his work uh, a little bit more than maybe they think they do. That, like, I, I think maybe where there's the disconnect is that they don't know who Guillermo del Toro is. But that, I think, is the same as like the Coen brothers or something, right? Like. I, I would agree with that. That is, I think that's really what I was was trying to um, articulate there is that he's not he's not a name director in the sense that some people are, where you can just say the director's name and they know exactly who you're talking about. And and a lot of this is antidotal. I'll admit, you know, I mean, I still have this thing where when people ask me, you know, like, do you have a favorite director? And I say Guillermo del Toro more often than not. Um, I get a lot of people being like, who, like, what has he made? I don't recognize um, that name. And and also part of it is coming from things that Del Toro himself has said. I mean, he's talked before about the fact that he doesn't think mm -hmm. that he's 
a mainstream player really. So, well, I mean, I think that comes down to, he views himself as a genre director, right? But right. And because he's a genre director, he's not mainstream. Um, and I, and then, you know, there's give or take there. I think it kind of just depends on who you're talking to. Uh, if you know movies uh, well enough, you you probably are aware of the guy. And to, oh, yeah, definitely. And to this particular one, I think that uh, they're looking at things at a very interesting uh, kind of standpoint here is that for the most part, and I can't I, I won't be able to tell you what they're doing when it goes wide, wide and everything. Uh, but as it stands right now, art houses are by and large the people that are getting shape of water. And I think that I think this is a smart move to kind of market this as this sort of movie because I'll be honest with you, when I saw this at the you know 7 p.m. screening on a Thursday night, first night it comes out, uh, you know, a theater that doesn't usually have a ton of people there, anyways, had a decent amount of people, and they were all people fairly older than I was, the majority of them, right? Uh huh. And. Uh, and they really liked this, and by the end, they actually, there were people that, and I don't, you don't see this in theaters, period, too much awful anymore, is people actually applauded at the end of this thing, of which I was kind of shocked by. And, uh, and, and I could hear the rumblings of people behind me and stuff, and just like, wow, they just don't make movies like this anymore. And like, this is, it's so nice to go out and see something like this that is, you know, of, of such high quality. And I, <laughs> I, I swear to God, I was just like, are we talking about Guillermo del Toro here? I can't believe well, I'm hearing this out of the mouths of people that are in their 50s what, and 60s. What's amazing to me is the, is the, uh, is that they don't make movies like this anymore. Cause all I can think is like, Oh really? How many movies you see where a woman fucks an amphibian man? Thank you. You know, <laughs> how many of those? Oh yeah, that old classic. That thing. old dime a dozen they used to do back there in the nineteen hundred and eighties. They used to get dime a you throw a rock, you'd hit a movie with but, a woman. But no, fucking I, I get what they're man. I get what they're talking about, right? Because this is in many ways a very classical style romance. Um, that is also married to a very classical style uh, Cold War thriller in many ways, as well as just an old school monster movie. Weird monster movie. Yeah, it's, it's I was, I was, I was going to say these people might have very fond memories of like Roger Corman's humanoids from the deep. But... <laughs> Not these people. Trust me. <laughs> I, you can look at these people. Oh, uh, yes. The, uh, the art house crowd. Very. Yeah. Very <laughs> um, I mean. Yeah, no, I, I think there I think there is something to that. I mean, in a in a year where I've seen actually quite a lot of things that I like, um, this movie stands out as probably the most just classical Hollywood style, right? In many ways, from the from the romance or the thriller plot or the monster design, right, being uh, based on the fantastic uh, Gilman uh, design from the Universal. Uh, film Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is my favorite monster design of all time. Um, I I think there is a lot here for people to glom onto in ways that maybe there aren't for other films of his. I mean, there's there's also not a mild spoiler, but uh, you know, to the extent that there's even an amazing black and white musical number in this thing. Yeah, which honestly, right? Like, it's a gorgeous film in many ways. I think for me, that's that was almost the piece that really uh, 
and I liked it up to that point for sure. But I think that bit right there, and spoilers from here on out for everybody, if you don't know that how <laughs> this program normally works. Um, with that bit right there, to me, that really cemented what that that bit was the heart and soul for this movie for me was because by the time that that thing ends, I got a tear in my eye because it was just it was super powerful with what it did. And honestly, that was a time where I sat back and I go, I don't know anybody but Guillermo del Toro that would either would a have the balls to do that and b pull it off. Yeah. And and. And just because this is a somewhat recent corrective, I mean, monster movie fans know this stuff if, if you're obsessive about it. But but I do want to say, like, for years, uh, just to just to get on the record here, um, the the actual design design for the Gill Man that was approved what, was a woman. It was uh, a Disney animator by the name of Millicent uh, Patrick, um, who, of course, wa- was like. Um, disregarded in the official histories for a long time um, by Bud Westmore, who who, um, received credit for the design. But he was, in fact, Millicent Patrick's assistant designer. Never trust a Uh, man named Bud. I've always said it. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're from Lancaster, South Carolina, so we know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, (laughs) This is very true. Uh, You you learn from experience, kids. Um, But... Yeah, uh, let's let's return to talking about the movie. I guess I just I just had to get that out there because I do love the creatures' design so much that I need to, like it's it's not the same in this film. The 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 man is uh, designed slightly differently, right? And he, he's much more, I think, monstrous in many ways. He's got spinies on his back. <laughs> he's got spinies. I mean, he's also got like fangs, which you don't really see in the original design. Um, the, the, he does have a more human face, though, than the Gill Man. The Gill Man traditionally has a very sort of frog-like face, including the fact that he's got that big pouch beneath his like chin that swells up right. when he's breathing. Whereas, you know, th- there's there's a lot of you know I know uh, you know Del Toro has has said that like when designing the the Gill Man or the Amphibious Man for this movie. You know, he was thinking about like classical sculptures like, you know, Michelangelo's David and stuff. And the fact that it's yeah. just like this real classic architecture, but then right covered with fins and scales and spines. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think part of that also goes back to the design work that he did with uh, with frequent collaborator Doug Jones as well, performing uh, even in the Hellboy films as Abe Sapien. Right. Like. Like some of those design elements are there in that film as well. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's funny you mentioned the the sculpture thing because that keeps cropping up in all the interviews that Octavia Spencer has been giving about this movie, where she just raves about how how uh, well sculpted the creature's ass is. <laughs> she just goes like every interview she mentions his butt being like really nice. <laughs> that Doug Jones got a sublime ass on him. I tell you that what boy. <laughs> Yeah, I've, uh. I've seen that. Yeah. So, well, yeah, no, I mean, it is just it, it is like this classic sort of Renaissance era sculpture sort of physique that you that you see, you know, and, and especially, I mean, again, toward, towards the end of the movie, you know, because which, which I thought was was really interesting and telling because for a lot of the film, you know, the creature is in a very vulnerable, very weak position. And it isn't until that last shot shot of the movie where you know he gets that kind of kind of classic 
hero pose shot and you really see like mm-hmm. how uh, you know well defined and and you know he completely stands up straight and arches his back and everything and of course you know I know we're I know we're in spoilers. I don't know if we want to want to go there yet, but you know that's that is of course you know the moment when when Michael Shan's character realizes how screwed he really is. <laughs> so oh yeah, right. Like throughout the throughout the film, there are all these illusions. He he mentions like the you know the people in the Amazon worshipped him as a god and that sort of thing, um, and he appears to have some form of magical powers. Although early in the film, you're unsure of what those are exactly. Um, and yeah, I mean, he does get to be that hero at the end while also performing, ironically enough, the function of a very um, typical monster, right? Who is kind of rampaging in his own way. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he gets, he gets in that very classic sort of creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, kill where he just you know swipes his claw and you know people get disemboweled so yeah um you know and and yeah I mean, you know creature on the black lagoon since we keep talking about it, is a huge influence on this film del toro's talked about that a lot i think everybody recognizes that you know and again if you're a fan of of those films that Universal did that original trilogy from 54 to 56. Like there's all kinds of little bits just like peppered through here. And it's not just stuff from the, the original 54. Yeah. There's film. stuff from the third one, right? You're right, one. right. Well, yeah. Cause the, um, the whole part where the, the, um, the military characters and the scientists are talking and you find out why they want to study the creature. And they say that they think that it'll help them, with space travel, that's directly out of the third film, The Creature Walks Among Us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was where that idea was brought up about why the Gill Man would be important. And then the whole thing with uh, Michael Shannon's character and his obsession with this this cattle prod and the monster um, is from the second film, Revenge right. of the Creature, where they're trying to domesticate it through essentially like shock therapy. So. So I'll put this out here now because because we're kind of in that sort of area here. And I like I said, I haven't uh, read anything. I don't know if anyone has made this comparison or anything like that. But I'm going to throw it out here because uh, I think it may, it, may, it may have some discussionary points to it. I think this movie is Guillermo del Toro's love letter to, uh, you know, monster movies and stuff of the 1950s. And I mean that in like a literal sense. Mm, Yeah. I mean, in many many ways. In as much as he is Elsa. Guillermo del Toro is Elsa in this movie. (laughs) Well, I I think there's a little bit to that, although I I would imagine like... um, Maybe not not identifying with her directly... um, with Elisa as much as uh, maybe maybe Giles a little bit, right? Like like there's this dichotomy that goes on that's all about loneliness and and the inability. Uh, one one thing that I definitely know is his, is his drive for for writing that character of Elisa is um, that he was frustrated with all of the universal monster movies because every monster got to be romantic except the creature. <laughs> That's true. Right. Like, like Dracula is this great Lothario. The mummy is a love story across time. Uh, 
even Frankenstein's monster gets the bride, right? Um, but but here we are. The Gill Man uh, never quite seems to land any of the ladies uh, that he's constantly stalking. Um, so so yeah, I, th- I think there's a little bit of identification there, although. Uh, I see a lot of Richard Jenkins character Giles in, in him as well, right? Just that kind of lonesome quality, um, trying to understand how other people relate to one another, uh, perhaps because he's not great at it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that this is definitely like, you know, I mean, Del Toro has, has made no bones about the fact that, you know, he is, you know, fanboy par excellence in terms Mm -hmm. of just monsters in general you know i mean he's you know he is he's taken up i i really feel like in in a way you know he's taken up that mantle that used to belong to like forrest j ackerman's right the founder of famous monsters of Uh filmland as just being you know the ultimate monster fan and you know ackerman was famous for the fact that you know, not only did he produce this this iconic uh, magazine, but, you know, that he had the Acker Mansion, which was his private home that he had turned essentially into a museum, which was stocked full of all kinds of just memorabilia. And then eventually, as his collection grew, actual film props and pieces of cinema history. He had stop motion models from King Kong. He had makeup bits from the Universal Monster movies, just all this kind of stuff. And, of course, Del Toro has gone and done that exact same thing with his Bleak House, his home that he has out in uh, California that is just chocked full of, of this same kind of stuff and that, you know, he is now yeah. actually even on tour as a kind of museum exhibit. So, you know, this this is a man who... Yeah, it was most recently at LACMA, right? I think so, yeah. The LA all, all I know is it's not here, so I can't go see it. Um, but, yeah, yeah. the... Uh, you know, yeah, he 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 loves. Um, yeah, he definitely loves monsters and, and has a great deal of affection for them. I I feel that Del Toro's level of of affection for monsters actually sort of surpasses, you know, even what you see with um, with Eliza in this film because you know she has this romantic relationship to the creature but del toro's relationships to monsters i feel is really a kind of reverence you know it's this religious sort of awe that you know these are these are creatures who you know though they might be products of our imagination Mm -hmm. are are greater than us and in a way um represent certain in, in a way i would guess you know represent some of the best aspects of us even though we tend to think of them as representing kind of the worst parts of us which is which is something that i i think is really interesting in this movie um because you know you know we've talked a lot about its relationship to creature from the black lagoon but the other film that this or the uh, the other sort of myth cycle i guess if you will this movie borrows a lot from is it it is of course a beauty and the beast story Mm -hmm. and you know one of the things that del toro has said now a couple times um about this is that you know you know, he, he, he is, he's enamored with fairy tales. He sees his movies in many ways as modern fairy tales. Um, and, you know, this is his Beauty and the Beast story. And the thing about it is, he said, you know, the thing about Beauty and the Beast that always frustrated him was that at the end, 
the beast had to turn back into a prince in order for them to live happily ever after. And and that's a very insightful critique of that story because when you think about it, it actually undermines what the moral of the story is traditionally understood to be, which is that right. Belle or Beauty had to learn to look past the beast's monstrousness and find the man inside and love that. You know, and so then the idea that at the end, in order for them to be together and be happy, he has to turn back into a person really undoes all of that work. Whereas, yeah, he, because this, he becomes like, oh, he's a hunky prince now. Exactly. Right. You know, whereas this film, um, this film subverts that by having the creature not turn into not turn into a prince. And now, now it does go somewhere else. Yeah, um, which, which I think actually makes a little more sense and is uh, also a tradition in fairy tales, right? Which is that uh, that there is a reward for having done that thing that is not ne like like uh, learned the lesson or whatever. Um, that is not necessarily now you're with a hunky guy, right? Which is that oh now you have some special uh, thing conferred upon you after completing a task or something like that, right? It, it's, a, it's a different approach to it, but it's a similar fairy tale trope. Yeah, and yeah. not for nothing, but she also at the same time, now take this for the grain of salt with which it's given, um, but being, you know, mute and everything like that, she has a harder place to fit in society, right? Yeah. And so like yeah. her, uh, this, this transformation then also kind of puts her at a place that may actually be better, uh, a world, if you will, that is better suited for her. Well, I think let's jump right in. So the, so the thing with Elisa, uh, with Elisa is that it's, um, she, she ends up, uh, so part of her muteness comes from these scars that are on her neck. She can't vocalize from it, right? She has, mm -hmm. uh, kind of three on each side. And, and uh, full-on spoiler for how the film ends, she ends up shot, right? And we know that the creature has this healing ability. And they go, he, he takes her underwater and heals her wound. Uh, and when they kiss, her wounds on, on her neck, her, her scratches, uh, her scars, they become gills. And she can now breathe underwater. And part of that is so, so I already mentioned that, that trope of like people receiving special gifts or abilities at the end of fairy tales, but here's an instance where it's also another compounded, uh, fairy tale trope, which is that, uh, this person clearly does not belong in the world within which they are born and has now entered this other realm because that's actually who they were all along. They find their rightful place. Well, and so the thing that I think is really interesting and that I, I, I badly want to know, like I've, th this was, you know, I mean, I'd love to sit down and, and have a conversation with Del Toro anyway, but this was an instance where when I got out of the theater, I badly wish that I could just immediately go and ask him a question because, you know, and I, I think it'll be interesting now that the film's out, you know, and. And as we progress, and there's there's other stuff coming out as well. There's going to be an art of book. There's going to be a novelization that Daniel Cross is doing for it. Mm -hmm. um, but 
what I, I think uh, is a separately, end- a completely separately conceived novel, right? So it's not really like based on the screenplay. It's him writing the same story with some of the same beats, right? I, I believe so. I, I know that it's, I, well, I know Del Toro tends to let his, his writers, when they do novelizations, have a lot more lean way than most yeah. people. Anyway, yeah, I, I, I just remember reading a, like a, an older interview with him about that project, and it was kind of like they met and talked about it, and then he kind of hasn't talked to Del Toro since. Yeah, um, but the uh, but so so my question though, of course, is you know were those marks on Eliza's necks even scars to begin with? Right. Because when I first saw when you know the, they first show you those at the very beginning of the movie. You know, when she's, uh, you know, waking up and doing her morning routine and everything, um, you know, that was my first thought was those look like gills. And, yeah, of course. And, and of course, they turn out to be gills. They're stupid, dumb, they, Adam. I was just like not even didn't even like didn't even pop on the radar, man. That's, that's how stupid I am. And, and so, you know, and there's there's a lot of really tantalizing, interesting things that that we we learn about her throughout the film, um, right. you know, including like, uh, you know, um, Octavia Spencer's character, you know, tells, um, tells Strickland during the, the interview, you know, about her that, uh, you know, that she was an orphan. They don't know who her parents were. She was found in a river. Right. Um, yeah. all of these kinds of things. And, and she can't, she can't speak and they don't seem to know why, and they assume that it has something to do with the scars on her neck. But part of what I'm wondering now is, well, could it actually be that she is part amphibious person? Right. And so, you know, that, that, you know, that, but she's, you know, she's appears more human than, than the amphibious man from the Amazon. And that would also make perfect sense for del toro because of course the other thing about him for people who who know his interests and follow his work is that he is a huge uh devotee of of american horror writer hp lovecraft mm-hmm. and that and and if you know lovecraft's body of work you know one of his most famous pieces is his novella the shadow over Innsmouth, which is all about that it is about this discovery of this little seaport town in new england where these people have made this sort of faustian compact with uh, a group of gillmen and this involves them interbreeding with them and that their children over time look more and more human and less and less fish-like but they retain certain features like gills and things that that are the the signs that they are not they are not fully fully people and del toro wouldn't be the first person to make a connection between um, Creature from the Black Lagoon and Shadow over Innsmouth. There's a there's a wonderful short story by horror writer Caitlin R. Kiernan called From Cabinet 34, Drawer 6, which mm-hmm. does the same thing. So it, it's a natural kind of connection to make. And so that that's something that I'm wondering about is, you know, what is the inference there at the end? Are we supposed to think that Eliza is is actually part of the same, you know, uh, you know, is is she some the sort kind of, of same kind of genus, breed? right? Right, some yeah. sort of half breed, you know, that doesn't actually, you know, that um, that's related to the same race as Doug Jones's amphibious man, um, you know, and that's why she's attracted to him. That's why she, you know, 
you know, they're, they're sexually compatible. You know, she feels this automatic connection, empathy to him. And then of course at the end, she can breathe underwater or is it supposed to be a thing where she's magically gifted this ability? And I'm, I'm not sure, honestly, I think, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, I think both ways are there to be read into. I mean, as, as you're tracing through all of those little, uh, uh, like nods to her having been some sort of uh, gill person all along. Um, you know, you you think about even the routine of eating hard boiled eggs every day and that being like the food that mm-hmm. she wants. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and also coincidentally the food that the gill man wants. Um, I, I think and, that and that's a very eat- strong connection. I mean, you could even make an argument because, again, you know, we, we've, you know, obviously a big part of this movie is it's about a woman who who falls in love and enters into a sexual relationship with this gill man. And, you know, Eliza's sexuality is a big part of this film, including the fact that, you know, you see right from the very beginning that part of her daily routine is is that she masturbates. But where does she choose to do that? Well, in the tub submerged in water. Right. You know, so there's all kinds of things that sort of. I think leads you to make a connection between her and this this amphibious man, and, and question perhaps whether, you know, you know the the reason the reasonings for that that connection. So, what's right. it mean that I like to do it in a hay bale? <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know porkers. <laughs> I, I don't know, like like you specifically. Me Pat. specifically. <laughs> me, me too. Hay bales for all of us. Uh, They'll they'll make a movie where you'll fall in love with like a cowgirl or something. <laughs> I don't mean that like a Mrs. Ed. girl that works on the farm. I mean, you know. <laughs> the, the remake you didn't know you wanted. <laughs> well, so so you know, in keeping in line with our discussion of this kind of fairy tale uh, element to everything, one thing. Uh, about the film that I find really interesting in that regard is the way that it constructs both its imagined past as well as kind of idealizes all of the interactions within that, right? So one thing I've seen a few people take some pot shots at, and I think, you know, probably rightly so, uh, are the way that gender and race relations get treated within this film, right? In this kind of not really realistic manner. Uh, although I th- I think, uh, you know, all of that comes down to uh, it's it's fairy tale status, right? In a fairy tale, you have this heightened realism that is an idealized version of whatever world you're telling the story within. And here, I think that plays out in those relationships that in other films, I could see like a lot more critique of not not doing very much with. Um, but you know, there is a significant uh, a couple of characters of color, predominantly Octavia Spencer. Um, Eliza, I take it, is supposed to be vaguely Hispanic um, or maybe Italian. I don't really know, but uh, of some sort I, of I ethnic minority. Esposito, um, that's pretty pretty Spanish to me. Right. Uh, but, you know, like and, and then, of course, like there's no other commentary to these things outside of that. And of course, they have that very contentious uh, male female relationship with Michael Shannon's character, who, of course, um, has a very problematic relationship with his own wife. Right. So um, 
any thoughts on any of that stuff? I think I think in, in the terms of the film and how it how it sets up the world that it's set in, I think it handles all of that in a really um, intriguing way, um, if not realistic, but one that makes sense with the internal logic of the of what the film is doing. I I feel like I, well, this kind of goes back to sort of for me that that goes back in a way kind of to the beauty and the beast point because the other thing about the the traditional kind of beauty and the beast story is not only you know it you know part of part of having the beast turn back into a prince at the end is that it's also kind of this embrace embracing of civilization right this idea that you know you can tell a young girl this story that she might go out and meet a man that seems beastly but if she can learn to see past that and see the good in him then in the end you know, she can domesticate him and bring him back to civilization and all mm-hmm. of the good things that are there. Whereas what a story like Shape of Water does, and again, it's not the first to do this. I, I, I always think about um, Angela Carter's short story, The Tiger's Bride. But, um, you know, what this does is that this this flips, by subverting that, it flips it on its head and it's saying, you know, civilization is not the place that you want to be. Civilization is not that it's all that it's cracked up to be. And like in the case for like Eliza, it's like you're going to actually be much happier living in the ocean with, you know, your your fishman boyfriend than you would be living amongst people back in civilization. And I feel like Del Toro kind of hammers that idea home by showing us the 1960s, the early 1960s, late 1950s, which is idealized in our culture as being this sort of like really perfect, great time, you know, sort of leave it to beaver, you know, or even sort of like Mad Men kind of world where, you know, things, things are, things are pretty good. But of course, the reality is that things were only really good for a certain class of people, you know, Mm-hmm. mainly straight white men, you know, right. um, like Michael Shannon's character. And, you know, it was really terrible for everybody else. So people of color, people who ha- um, were, were minorities in other ways, you know, uh, uh, Giles, the character of Giles is gay. Octavia Spencer, um, we already told you, is black. And Eliza is uh, nonverbal, um, you know, right. the, the scientist, the main scientist character is, um, you know, is Russian. So, he, you know, and, and these are all people who are pushed out and marginalized and villainized in this society. And they end up being the ones who come together to help this sort of ultimate outcast in the form of the amphibious man. Right. Um, you know, and so it, it does. And, you know, and so. I, I do agree. I, I, I've seen some of those same critiques that Matt mentioned about how it's portrayed. And, you know, the, the only thing that I'll, I'll say about that is that I do agree, especially especially in the case of, of Shannon's portrayal of his character of, of Strickland, is that it's a, it's a little, fairy tale would be the nice way to put it. I would say that in some ways it's almost a little cartoony. It's a little hammy. Mm-hmm in the way that it's done because it feels I don't want to say it feels heavy handed, but it's just like, I mean, you you get the idea that Del Toro told Shannon to play Strickland as basically just the biggest piece of shit possible. 
And he really well, took that to heart. Yeah, I mean, I, I get the sense from his per- performance that Del Toro basically was like, hey, uh, Michael, if you can do the most Michael Shannon you could do. So you want, what, basically <laughs> what you're that. saying is you want me to just be down here just a little bit and then get really mad at people and kind of punch them around a little yeah. bit? Okay, I yeah, can do that. And then, and then rip my own fingers off and have green pus bl- oozing out of them. You yeah. want me to do that yeah, and be that, really angry? That I'll do it. I can, I can handle that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, because that's, yeah, he's just, he's this total, you know, you know, Bible thumping, warmongering, you know, misogynistic, racist, just, you know, he's, you know, there's, there's like no redeeming qualities to him, right. you know? Yeah. So, um, which is, you know, which is, you know, and, and, you know, to, to Del Toro's credit, because he's talked about this, that, you know, like, he wanted to try and get into everybody's lives, including his villain, and show them, you know, like, what motivates him. And we we do see that with his character, you know, but in the end, I, it, it doesn't really justify, you know, any of any of the way that he is. You're just like, you know, yeah, you're still an awful human being. So, um, but, yeah. you know, I, I, I feel like that, I feel like the thing about it is that that is, you know, that kind of material is, you know, always, always going to be tricky. And I think it just depends about how well, you know, people choose to, to relate to a metaphor. I mean, you know, I, the last time I was on this show with Adam was for the last Planet of the Apes movie. And we touched a Mm -hmm. little bit on, you know, Planet of the Apes being a franchise that also has this history of trying to do things, you know, with race, with minorities, with discrimination and, you know, how that plays out. And it's been a franchise that's been very successful at it. It's been very well received. Lots of people rally behind those movies, you know. Um, But, you know, I, I, I taught a class at the beginning of this year on Planet of the Apes, you know, and I had students who at the end of the class was like, yeah, you know, I think this is all really interesting, but I still am kind of offended by the idea that, you know, the only way people can think to rep- represent minorities is with half human, half monkeys, you know, even if it's supposed to uh-huh. be in a good light. So, you know, it's just it's always going to depend on how how receptive you are to trying to communicate those kinds of issues through metaphor, I think, you know, that is when you um, slap them in the face and go, you're in college now, bitch. I want you to open your mind. <laughs> Jesus, I tried. I tried it very gently. So. I'll shake you. How's that sound? <laughs> but yeah, you know, so, um, you know, but yeah, I, I feel like that's a little bit of a, of a fair critique. You know, I, I feel, I feel that, you know, yeah, you could, you could say that the portrayal of that kind of stuff in the movie, you know, it can, can be a little over the top and, but at, at the same time, I don't know. I feel like there's very, very well done, very kind of subdued things. Like I really enjoyed the fact that like Giles, you know, Henry Jenkins character gets this arc of, you know, not wanting to help Eliza, not wanting to get involved in this, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and clearly being the kind of person who, while, you know, he may not think of himself, like the impression I got of his character was that he was somebody who didn't think of himself as harboring any kind of prejudice, but it's very telling that, you know, at the one point where Eliza's hanging out with him and she's trying to watch, you know, the news about the race riots and he's just like, turn that off, I don't want to see it, you know? It's yeah. like he doesn't want to acknowledge the ugliness 
in the world around him. And it isn't until he has that moment in the diner where the he guy, realizes you have to deal with this stuff. He, you, you have to deal with it. And then mm-hmm. he goes back and helps her, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, but it was great. I mean, I, I like that whole, the whole diner thing with him where it's just like, he feels like he's making this connection. And it's just like, Nope, you got to remember like, this is like, this is not where you think you are right now. This is you, you think you found a kindred spirit. Oh no, not so much. And uh, it, it doesn't end well. And I'm glad that it, it sounds bad that to say this like this, but I'm glad it ended that way because that was actually more realistic. It's, yeah, well, it also provides uh, you know like a character uh, character impetus to precisely. actually do something. Exactly. Like, uh, it, right? Because had that not stand up, like if 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 he had that that interest, would he have stood up at that point? It's actually a very good question. Um, Adam, let me, let me ask you about this. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about the romantic plot of this film? I th- again, I think, I think, uh, you know, th- this was Del, she's Del Toro and Del Toro wants to like, cause this is a man who, li- and I say this uh, not like, you know, uh, from a funny standpoint or anything, this is a man who's literally talked about movies and compared them to having sex. So, oh yeah, well yeah, of course. So I, I, I uh, but, literally but I th- believe that. But this who is- among us has not? <laughs> um, He's like, when you're in a movie, it is, and it, the movie is so great, it's like you're fucking, and it's the greatest fucking you ever had in your entire life, and it's just like that's how the man talks. So, yeah. uh, that's when I watch this, and I just go, oh. Well, she's clearly del-, del Toro, and this is him trying to get to Chris. And like uh, Michael Shannon is essentially, you know, the movie system, if you will. You know, like like with his wife and everything, she's saying, "Hey, I don't necessarily sh- let me tell you what is what this is all about. Me, not necessarily you. Just shut up and let me do what I'm gonna do." And it's his like, "Hey, we need to figure out how this thing works. We get this, separate things out. Doesn't matter if we dismantle it at the same time. We just want to be able to do what we're going to do and able to." you know, further on our specific goal and everything. Yeah. And at the same time too, uh, when we get to the point where they're letting go and, you know, he, she, he has to, uh, you know, she has to let him go at the, at the, uh, dam there or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's him basically going, look, this, you don't belong here. Essentially, this is the, this, you had a time and a place. This is it. You need to go this way. And him also going, you know what? Maybe I can come along with you. So like when, when I said that, you know, earlier in the show, I 100 I percent am behind my silly, crazy ass theory that I don't know that anybody else has had. But to me, this is his absolute. And, and he's got a little Richard Jenkins in him, too. You're absolutely right there. And I think he's got a touch to all of these types of characters. But I think this is basically him coming to grips with a lot of the you know monster movies and movies of that era from the 50s and so forth and being able to still be able to love those but at the same time realize that that's not where we are today i don't know i i i haven't heard that before but i really like that that was not something that i thought of you know and in terms of like those characters and that kind of dynamic and you know it makes a lot of sense because something that we haven't talked about in relation to this movie, of course, is is part about how Del Toro got it made because, you know, this this film, you know, the numbers that are out there right now is that this was about 19 million, um, because uh-huh. because Del Toro says that you know he went to Fox Searchlight and basically you know sat down with them and said how little money do you have to spend where I am guaranteed complete creative control. You right. know, and they they told him less than twenty million. Any more than that, and we have to have a say 
in what you're doing. And he was like, that's fine. You pay your part. I'll pay everything else out of pocket, you know, because because that was something that was very important for him. And like I have, you know, I I have the book uh, at home with monsters that he put out last Mm -hmm. year, I think. And one of the things he talks about in that book is about how, you know, you know, Crimson Peak was a movie where he got basically complete creative control over everything in it until it came time for them to sell the movie. And he hated the advertising campaign. It wasn't that. good. No. Yeah. You yeah. know, and that was, and you know, so he wanted with shape of water. It makes sense that, you know, he wanted complete control. He wanted the ability to sell this, you know, as exactly what it is, which is, this is a movie where a woman falls in love with a fish and we're done. Yeah. Yeah, it's easily also. I think uh, no, no, that's going to happen. <laughs> I, I think it's easily the best fish fuck movie I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, and and there is another one that I've seen. A fish uh, called there... Wanda. Boom! Thanks well, everybody. I'll be here well, all week. <laughs> well, that movie. Wait, wait. I want to know. Well. What, I want to know what the other one is. If it's well, not there, a, from the deep. <laughs> there's a <laughs> there's a scene in uh, the Thai film uh, Uncle Boon Me who can recall his past lives, which was a huge hit. Uh, in the art house circuit four or five years ago. Um, uh, I think it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes that year that it came out, actually. Uh, but there's a, uh, in that movie, a woman uh, gets oral sex from a catfish in a, in a lake. Just like a regular catfish? Just a regular catfish. Okay. So, you know, I think this one beats that fish fuck movie just a little bit. I okay. <laughs> I bought some movie at Dragon Con. I've there just heard... wasn't enough romance in that one, you know. I don't, I don't can't just remember if doing it was it. a squid. I forget what it was called, but there was some. Uh, yeah, well, look, I'm not I'm not counting uh, Dragon Con short f- film. No, this was this or... was this was a full length feature film, which, if we'll be honest, was really just uh, a super awkward softcore porn. Yeah. Okay. Is it, well, is, it, are, is this the film where they're like <laughs> these people who keep going to this cabin? Something like that. It's called like Pussy Fuckers or something. Okay. Or Killer, I, Puss, no, I, Killer I Pussy. Killer Pussy is the I name know of which it. movie you're talking about. But well, I let's disregard. Let's. These are mainstream films I'm talking about here. That was not basic. hentai, because uh, you know, Lord knows what a hentai inclusive list of fish <laughs> it was fuck live movies action. would look like. It was live action, so I give. Yeah, okay. That. Well, that's good. It's very, good. very bad CGI. I, I was going to say, like the only, <laughs> the only other. I, I've had people. I've had a couple people bring up. There's a, there's a Japanese film called Underwater Love, but that's not actually a fish person. It's like a, it's a kappa, which is a different sort of thing. And then there's a Korean movie I know called Collective Invention, where it's a guy who has a fish's head, um, uh-huh. but. Well, that that's, barely that's counts. Also, that's also <laughs> a little bit different. So, yeah. There, you know. there is also, uh, from a couple years back, a Polish film called The Lure uh, that is basically a, a horror film slash musical retelling of The Little Mermaid. Is that, I think, didn't Criterion just release that? Yeah, yes, they did, but I haven't okay. sat down to it yet. Uh, no, very I much haven't. looking forward to it, especially yeah. so I can put it in conversation with what this movie's doing. Because okay. I assume they're thematically very similar although executed completely differently well of course i mean that's one of the big things because yeah i mean i think that there is a very rich history of this sort of thing in horror cinema but the the thing about it is that it's it's either 
always the case where the the sexual interaction between the person and the monster is depicted as being abhorrent and monstrous monstrous yeah monstrous monstrous yeah Uh and you don't you know it's something that you don't want that you don't want to be involved in and people don't want happening um you know and and you do have to kind of go back to something like the original creature from the black lagoon series where that's obviously still very much the case but what's fascinating about watching those films nowadays is that because it is a little bit more chase because of the time period you can see sort of you know the creature's perspective as being one of kind of unrequited love um and of course what's also really funny about the creature movies that relates back to to shape of water and the way that all these characters are kind of subverted and skewered is um actually in the second creature from the black lagoon movie revenge of the creature um, and this this especially comes out if you go and you watch the Mystery Science Theater 3000 take on that film is the fact that the guy character, the, the, the girl character in that movie is really just being treated like an object by all of the guys in that movie. And the creature honestly has like the best relationship to her, even though she still doesn't want to be with him, you know, but right. yeah. Um, I'm so going that, where this creature that's respects really me. funny. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. Uh, so, so I guess we should we we've been going a little yeah. bit. We should probably wrap up. But uh, you know, I I really love this movie. I think it uh, it might be actually my favorite thing I've seen this year. I know I've said mm-hmm. that about Lady Bird, and I still am kind of split on it a little bit. But like there's something about this movie that just kind of hits every single note that I want a movie to hit, uh, for me personally on a, on a very personal level, as well as I think just on a technical, uh, storytelling level as well. Um, and, and, uh, I, I think we're going to be intrigued by how well this movie does when it goes wide next week. Cause it's done incredibly well in limited release. I, uh, according to the, the onlines, um, it's only been released in 158 screens so far hmm. and has grossed, uh, uh, about three and a half million dollars. It's been, it's been pulling in about, uh, like this weekend, it pulled in a $10,000 per screen average, which is not shabby. Yeah. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, like compared to the big open, right? The big Fox movie this past weekend, Ferdinand, uh, that that pulled in a three thousand dollars per screen average, right? So per screen, it's doing extremely well. I'm intrigued to see what it's going to do when it goes wide. I think it's going to be actually kind of a big hit. I know a lot of people here uh, are still anticipating going to see it who haven't seen it yet, just like over Christmas break, so. I also think that it's going to be one of those films that, you know, even if it's even if it doesn't go much wider than it is now or it gets sort of overshadowed by a lot of the other big holiday movies come Oscar season next year, um, it'll probably get a lot of attention just based on how it's done so far at things like the Venice Film Festival and the Golden Globes. It's going to get, I think, a lot of Oscar buzz. And if it gets re-released in theaters, um, around that time because of that, or shortly afterwards, depending on how it actually does in terms of wins, um, you could have a lot of, a lot more people turning out 
to to see it to find out what this movie is that everybody's kind of like you know ha- has all this buzz and all this acclaim about especially especially i think you know if because of that acclaim they find you know the premise then even more intriguing because i think that it's one of those things where if you tell someone what this movie is about <laughs> they're gonna go they no think that, <laughs> yeah right i mean if they don't just outright reject it they're just gonna be like well that sounds kind of weird and not like something i think any decent person would watch <laughs> and then you're like movie? well you you know like it just it just won or it just got nominated for like seven golden globes and like every critic that's seen it pretty much thinks that it's one of the best films this year and then people will be like all right well maybe i need to go see like the fish fuck movie that's what i'm saying dude <laughs> uh, like uh, like an art house cinema audience on a thursday evening applauded a fish fuck movie i mean what what, what else do you well, want no well, it just won. Uh, I think the LA Film Critics uh, uh, thing, it, 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 uh, the Film Critics Association, it won like Best Director, Best Actress. I mean, I really do think audiences, even general audiences, pay attention to that stuff still, and it kind of does drive where they are going to spend their time and energy uh, dur- during a month that really is filled with releases that are vying for that same kind of critical acclaim and attention from the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, but overall, I mean, I can definitely say that I would, I'd recommend this thing. And, uh, cause even if you have, you know, somewhat trepidation about it, check it out. I mean, if you've liked any of del Toro's other films, I, I think you'd at least owe this one, you know, uh, a solid two hours of your watch time, you know? Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so. Cool. So, uh, yeah, I'd say that's uh, three very strong recommendations, everybody. So go check all that kind of good stuff out. Uh, thank you guys for joining us on this Patreon episode. If you are one of the supporters on Patreon who got this show early, thank you so much for uh, helping support this show and everything. And if you got it a little bit later, see what kind of cool stuff we end up dropping. Sometimes we drop these and we don't give them to nobody else but the Patreon people. So do yourself a favor. Drop on down to patreon.com slash the film find and join up today, man. We really appreciate everybody that does that an executive producer of this here episode and all the episodes in the month of december uh maria from upstate new york so maria thank you for being our top donor over there we really appreciate that in the meantime uh let's start with our guest here justin uh do, do you have any i know you're not on twitter or anything do you have like an article or anything that's been out or something that's kind of looming in the background or something um i've got i got a few things so um i I think last time I was on this show, because it was during the summer, uh, this hadn't happened yet, but I've got uh, two books out now with chapters in them that I wrote. Um, so one is uh, uh, on the Japanese superhero series Ultraman, and that's in a book called Giant Creatures in Our World. Um, the other one is uh, a chapter I wrote so um, for a book called The Retrofuturism of Cuteness, and that is actually um, an examination that I did of uh, adult My Little Pony fans. You might have heard of them. If you don't oh. understand them, that's okay. I'll explain it to you. I didn't understand them either. Um, and then in addition to that, I've got a series of uh, interviews I'm doing on Japanese superheroes that's going to be on the website Hinchin Justice Unlimited with the first interview going up this Thursday. So that's a series that's going to be called Scholars Talking Toku. So I interview different people who do academic work 
where we've looked at Japanese superheroes and we talk about how they're different than American superheroes, how they're similar, what some of the cultural stuff that goes into Japanese superheroes that maybe if you've ever watched uh, one of these movies or one of these shows or even something like uh, Power Rangers and you've been like, I don't, uh, why is the Red Ranger always the leader? We talk about that. Mm. We talk about the deep lying, um, uh, mythological and, and religious and cultural roots that feed in to those sorts of things. And then, of course, I've, I've got my blog um, that I don't update nearly frequently enough because of life, um, but that's uh, called Man Creates Dinosaurs, and that's at uh, Tumblr. And uh, I, am, I have been trying to do a series of posts talking about some of the uh, mostly right now kind of literary precursors to the movie Shape of Water. So stuff uh, like like what I mentioned on here, like Lovecraft and some other authors who who wrote stories about amphibious humanoids before, um, you know, you know, way before even Creature from the Black Lagoon. So um, hopefully I can I can keep doing that series as time permits. But that's what I've been up to, and and that's where people can find me. Awesome. You hear that, fellow nerds? There's tons of awesome stuff out there for you. Get on top of it, Matt. Uh, you can follow me doing uh, substantially less interesting things on Twitter, uh, <laughs> at Matt Boyd Smith. Uh, I also do a periodic newsletter. Uh, that's at tinyletter.com slash conspiracy media theory. So uh, either one of those things. Uh, mostly I've been talking about movies lately on Twitter, so that's been a plus, I think. <laughs> <laughs> But no promises, no promises. So, uh, and of course, here movie podcast, here moviepodcast.com. I, Justin, I may have you on. We may do like a special Patreon episode talking about Japanese superheroes. That's something that might be interesting to uh, those folks over there. I, and I uh, do, I do mm-hmm. want to say uh, real quick, Adam, before uh, before you give your sign off, uh, I I uh, have have gotten a Filmstruck account. Ah. And it's really awesome. But what what why I'm going to plug it on this episode is if you've been waiting for a reason to give this thing a free trial, period, uh, the Criterion channel right now is hosting a series of films for any good kaiju fan. Mm. Um, and they have a series called Godzilla and Beyond where uh, like literally all of the old Godzillas are up. Godzilla, Godzilla Raids Again, King of the Monsters, Rodan, Mothra versus Godzilla, Ghidorah, Invasion of Astro Monster, War of the Gargantuans, right? Like just all kinds of stuff is available on the Filmstruck Criterion channel. So since this is a monster-centric uh, episode, I've been kind of watching some of those anyway in my spare time uh, since I've had this service. If you've been waiting for a chance to just test out Filmstruck and see what it's like and what the content's like, all that stuff is currently available on there. And let, let me let me jump in on that real quick because I am I am well aware of of what Criterion has been doing here, and I will just add that um, you at at the present moment there is not a better way to experience a lot of those classic Godzilla movies. Um, Criterion has you know Godzilla films you know in in you know, unfairly in my opinion, but, you know, they do not 
get the best treatment um, outside of Japan when it comes to foreign releases. Um, no. You know, we have to deal with, you know, poor picture quality. We have to deal with um, lousy special features a lot of times if we even get them. Sometimes they go above and beyond, but there are small print runs. There are, you know, out of sync dubs if that's something that you want. But Criterion has gone a hold of a bunch of these films, the classics from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they have just given them a pristine treatment. The print quality is great. The subtitles are the best that we've ever had. And mm -hmm. for real nerds, some of the stuff that they've done are things that we, we never thought we would ever see. So a, a great example is... Um, I, I think you mentioned Matt. You know, they've got the movie War of Garga War of the Gargantuas on there, right. which is a favorite of Del Toro's. It's a favorite of Quentin Tarantino's. It's a favorite of um, I believe it was uh, Brad Pitt said that that was the movie that made him want to be an actor. So, um, and it's it's a great kaiju movie. And one of the things that's really cool about the filmstruck version of it is that it has. Um, it has the original uh, Toho-produced English dub, which has never been made available before um, outside of a Dutch VHS tape release. Um, <laughs> well, I've got that. I remember, yeah. I remember watching this movie for the first time uh, on like a, one of those shitty dupes you used to could purchase mm -hmm. for like five bucks in the grocery store checkout line. That, that's my only memory before uh, Filmstruck of having seen this movie ever. It is on like just a crappy VHS dupe in the grocery store checkout line that I got oh, for yeah. five dollars. <laughs> no, yeah, War of the Gargantuas has been has been one of those movies that has been severely mistreated by by foreign releases, and it is it's well worth a watch um, because it, it really is it's a it's a great movie. It's from Ashiro Honda, the original Godzilla director, and. Mm -hmm. You know, and 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 that that dub, I I'm I'm plugging that dub mostly because, you know, you get to hear, um, you know, uh, Russ Tamblin say the line, "Huh, Frankenstein's ghost is eating people." So, and I don't know anywhere else where you will ever get to hear dialogue like that. So. It's so true. Yeah, so true. Filmstruck, you owe us twenty dollars for all that. So just. <laughs> Or at least memberships for a year. How about that? Be, I'll, I'd, I'd I'll that. work on it. I, I yeah. do work for Turner. I'll, I'll put in a word. Get get on I'll it, see. man. My God. <laughs> and uh, all the other stuff. You guys know what the thing is. And always email us at thefilmfind at gmail.com. That is it, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this special bonus episode. For Justin Mullis, Matt Smith, I'm Adam Portress. Take it easy, everybody. Avant d'avoir eu vent de vous, mon 